From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey coming to you with my buddy Audie Weiner. And we are sitting in the Wharton Moneyball, I should say, business radio studio here at the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall looking out onto University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk. Famed Locust Walk never looks better. Well, spring is a tough competitor, but I'll take fall. I'll take this time of year for Locust Walk anytime. We're in peak fall gorgeousness in Philadelphia. They're complaining about cold. Those of us from Texas are delighting in the cold. Goodness gracious. Adi, afternoon to you. How are things going? Good. It's 27 degrees when I biked in this morning. So, you know, it's cold. You're you're a star. You're a star for braving. But it was dry. It was dry and and clear and beautiful. beautiful. I mean, come on. We are in studio. It doesn't happen very often. Every few months we get a chance. Eric Bradlow is going to roll in here for the second half of the show. Shane Jensen, sadly, is in transit to points. Jensen, somewhere, he'll be back. Some combination of us are here almost every week. I used to say every week until our buddy Yuval corrected me. It's not quite every week, but almost every week, some combination of us are here to talk sports analytics. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. As we typically do these days, the show will go up on Wednesday morning, Sirius XM, be replayed a couple times over the course of the week. We'll get the podcast up on Wednesday as well. If y'all have comments, questions, complaints, throw them at us. Easiest way to catch us, Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall is our handle. We have all of our guests up there. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics on occasion, and we do love to hear from you. We have a guest coming in for a short spot here in the first half of the show. We thought we'd grab Eric Eager. Longtime friend of the show. Eric is with Sumer Sports now, formerly PFF. You guys know him from this show. He's, he's got a little article out on estimating the coach, coaching effects. Coaching effects is kind of a frontier. The hardest it, thing to measure in all of sports. Well, that's that's a little much. That's a little much. Well, it is, okay. a, it is a right, hard right, thing. Right. Injury you, analytics. That's the hardest. No. Well, I, you <laughs> might, I might agree with you if you said of the most important things, Yeah, it's the, it's the hardest, hardest one. Sure. Something, something sure, like that. Sure. So we're going to have a conversation with Eric in a few minutes. But just to get things going before Eric rolls in here, Adi, it, it's, it's, it's kind of the best of times and the worst of times to be a Jets fan. In a way, it seems to me, I can't turn the TV on without getting Jets thrown at me, which is a new experience. Which is kind of crazy. They are on all the time. I think they were expecting to have a different quarterback. The, yeah. the, the, the TV broadcasters, those people, they might have scheduled accordingly. It's a mystery that Zach Wilson is still there. He's just bad. And the, although they claim that they're just going to keep sticking with him, I, listen. What I'm no I'm no expert on quarterback evaluation, but he can't he can't score a touch a touchdown. I mean, mm-hmm. and what can I tell you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some quarterbacks you don't have to be an expert to assess. I think in although some he, offenses, he did look better this week than the previous. Week. You know, we have to accept that there's going to be intra player variation. Yeah. We mm-hmm. we're slow to recognize that as human beings, but there is quite a bit. Also. His performance depends on a lot of other factors, right. not only the other 22 people on the field, 21 people on the field, but... I think football is probably one of the positions where interplayer variation is larger. Inter, intra. Intra, intra, intra. within yourself. You play differently. Really? In a, in, I'm, I'm, You're comparing I'm it to that other as sports? a conjecture. So uh, it's Tuesday as we record, but tomorrow morning they'll announce the Cy Young winner. It'll hopefully be Garrett Cole for the Yankees. Uh, so I look forward to that. Um, but pitching, I think, is one where there's that, a lot of intra-player variation. Uh, and what makes the elite so spectacular is they vary less. They're always good. And I think probably with quarterback, too, what makes the elite quarterback is they're always good. But there's probably less intra-quarterback variation than there is starting pitcher variation. But I would imagine that among the positions on the football field, quarterback varies more. Game okay, game. Here, here's, a, here's a question for you. Since we don't observe quarterback in his purest nope. form makes it hard because the because play is so interactive in football unlike baseball where the guy's going to stand there initiate yep. the motion throw the ball <laughs> yeah. um is that going to increase or decrease our perceived intra-player variation massive Ma- massive increase in variation per- perception for the qb who's mm-hmm. subject to all these mm-hmm. other forces 
because he's got his natural, yeah, but he's got these other things. That's right. So now, you might have said it was going to be counterbalancing that the noise, like you're taking an average of a lot of people now, in some sense. No, that's just the backdrop that makes it background noise. Just makes it harder. Think about big. One of the things I did watch during the game is is big plays in football matter a lot, right? That's got to be sadly, they, sadly hard to predict. But hard to very predict. Consequential. They matter a lot, and they can. And this is one of the reasons why the lines are so big, right? At the end of the day, what is it? Twelve and a half is the standard deviation, the residual standard error. You don't mean uh, the lines are so big. You mean the no, var- no, the, line, variance the variance off the line. So, yeah. you, so the lines are not big at all, and that's because of the variance off the line is so large. Uh, the errors, basically, the prediction error of the market. Mm-hmm. Even though the markets are fantastic, really tough to beat. The prediction errors are still substantial. And I think one of the reasons for that is the impact of those big plays, and I just mean obviously the turnover. Overs, the fumbles, the interceptions, but also those big forty-yard plays down the line that just change everything. Mm-hmm. And and it's hard to predict when they're going to actually succeed. You see these terrific, um, you know, circus catches. You see great plays, and also drop balls that, that you wonder what happened, right? And so there's got to be a lot of variance that reflects on the quarterback. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple things here. One of the things we're going to talk about with Eager when he jumps on here in a few minutes is can we parse that variance at all? We tend to just say variance, can't explain it, you know, un- irreducible uncertainty. So one of the things, kind of preview of what Eager's trying to do is like, can we pull any more signal out of that variance? But on the fort, on the sport, on the sport, on the topic of NFL, we've talked here and there about some research you've done with one of your PhD students, Ryan Brill. Mm-hmm. Everybody's favorite kid around here, Ryan Brill, super bright guy, been with us for a few years, doing great work. Y'all had this paper on essentially fourth down decisions and the subtitle of which is you should be a little less certain about what the coach should do here. Yeah. Okay. You just said you guys have some new results. This has been getting, let me just say a lot of attention from a lot of places, which is cool. Y'all are talking to teams about it. You're getting retweeted by folks in the NFL about it. People are excited about this paper and I'm curious, you're still pushing it forward. So what have you seen? recently? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I mean about two thirds of the decisions are, are essentially Toss-ups. And I don't mean because the win probability... You know, fourth-down decisions. Fourth-down decisions. I don't mean because the win probabilities are small. It means that the data is... There's too much irreducible variance in the data to know the answer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is a topic that people have a very hard time trying to grasp. It's the difference between a confidence interval, which is uncertainty in the parameters. It's the, it's the, it's the model uncertainty. And, it, and, it's, and it's not coming because we think the model's wrong. That's a whole separate pile of uncertainty. It's, we, we're assuming the model's right. It's the data that goes into the model produces uncertainty in the parameter estimates. And the way that manifests itself in the decision-making is there's a lot of decisions, about two-thirds of them, this is something we calculated recently, are essentially uncertain. Um, now, a third of them are like slam dunks. And one thing that's interesting, most coaches get those right. Although it does vary. This is another thing we calculated. The best coach gets about 93% of the, of the obvious ones. And when I mean obvious, I, not just the data is just nearly 100% certain that one of, the, one of the decisions is the right one. Mm-hmm. And the best coaches get about 92 93%, and the worst about 75%. Mm-hmm. But there's still a spread there. Oh, I've, yeah. seen, I've seen your results. The spread goes from the 90s down to the oh, 70s. Yeah. So, and kind of the obvious... Um, suspects are at the top and bottom of that list, which is kind that's of a right. cool thing. And whether the other thing that's interesting is if if you just stick to the the ones that we that we are certain about, there's about and this is a huge number. One point four games are extra wins you could get. Now this is if you if you went from all if everybody else stayed the same. Obviously, if everyone changed their play, that changes the whole win probability models. Everything shifts, right? Um, one, but you're just saying now that wouldn't be the case if the guy's off the top of your list, like Harbaugh. No, it's just I think an, it's just an average. List. Like the average person the average, on that list, yes. if they move to 100 percent with the model, just on the one third mm-hmm. of the time that the model's quite sure they know the right thing to do, just on that one third of the time, if the average coach played it that way, 1.4 wins a yeah. season? You're kidding? That's a huge effect. Yeah. Seems enormous. It does seem enormous. It's suspiciously enormous for only one third of the fourth downs. Well, remember those are those are also the ones with the biggest win probability because you're most certain when there's biggest win probability at stake. Okay, so um, that's so these are the highly certain ones. But what's actually interesting is that there are also a lot of highly certain ones that various which. Where, well, hold on. Let's just go through some base. This is what you would do as well. Let's just talk about the number of times this comes up. So let's see how many fourth downs a coach faces in a season, and then we're saying a third of those the model's quite sure that what the right 
course mm-hmm. of action is. So let's just talk about raw numbers. I can only get through this by like how many punts I think there are. How many punts do I think an average team has in a game? Uh, five. How does that do? Five seems okay, but but remember, lots of fourth downs they they actually do, they, they actually do something don't else. punt. So they these keep days, field these goals days, and, yeah, field and goals. They so go for it, and I think there are lots of ten. I mean, ten. Oh, and it's more than one per drive as too, well. Right? Actually P- punts. I we said also, punts. I said so punts. There are lots of... Uh, I don't know. Are that many fourth downs? How many fourth downs per drive? And then how many drives? Right. So I mean, this is a number that... that you should I, have. I should have. I think there are 19,000 we have over a five-year period. Okay. Um, 4,000 a year. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you, you can kind of back end that way. Okay. All right. All right. Go ahead. Doc. So one of the things, one of the interesting questions that that I'd like to get an answer to is: there's lots of decisions that are obvious that don't involve much change in win probability because they're early in the game. So if you make the wrong move when it's early in the game, or almost equivalently, if there's a big lopsided score differential, or or, or it's close to the end of the half, but just think about early in the game. Imagine two teams that are pretty close together. And if you make the wrong move, the win probability might shift by a few points, but not much, right? Those, act, but there are a lot of those, and there, I think there's a lot of bad decisions being made early in the game that don't get much attention. That, that sounds reasonable, but you're saying, on the one hand, it's not a huge edge that you're giving up. On the other hand, there's lots of them, so mm-hmm. why not just collect a bunch of small collect edges? Collect those small edges. Mm-hmm. There's a little thing, lots of things to pick up, and I think that you, see, you we don't, they don't get much attention. Lots of punting on fourth and two. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw the Jets do that. Punting on fourth and two. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because they don't have the tush push down right. Maybe you got to get you. Has anyone ever tried two push tushes? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show off my y- y- use of Yiddish, but it would be put two push tushim is <laughs> what you would use. And uh, What do you mean by two? In other words, if you need to get, say, two or three yards and you have, and it's, say, you have second, two downs, you have two, two downs, downs to oh, do it. Yeah, yeah. Do Instead of... But they don't, people, in those situations, we want people to dial up the variance and here, you you know, let's let's throw a, a deeper pass because you can come back yeah. and get the first down with more certainty later. But what if you're on the goal line and it's first and it's first down and you have three yards to go? Has anyone attempted two, two pushes? Just, yeah, yeah, good, good, fair, fair, <laughs> fair. If they haven't, they will soon. I mean, I doubt. saw the Jets give up. They were first. They were first down and three, and they ran it in. Had a fumble. Hey, not a fumble. A, a holding call back mm-hmm. ten yards. Never scored. So I, I just want to say two quick things about your fourth down model. Then we'll just jump over to catch Eric and talk about his coaching model, which is highly connected here. In fact, it's kind of opposite way of coming to the coaching evaluations. You might say top-down versus bottom-up, which Eric did say in his article, as a matter of fact. But just a quick thing about your about your fourth-down work. I think the most interesting thing about that is the meta message, which is, analyst, chill. You're not as sure as you think you are. Your model's not as good as you think it is. That's like the kind of universal message, and sometimes we need that. Um, all right, we'll hear more about that down the road, I'm sure. Why don't we transition now? We were able to catch Eric. Eric, as I said at the top of the show, longtime friend of the show, Eric Eager with Sumer Sports. Eric just put out a paper. He did it in the best academic fashion. He says, yeah, I'm not done. We haven't figured this out, but I want to get it going. Probably in the spirit of I want to get some eyeballs and some comments. And so, Eric, we're here for you, man. We're here to give you some comments. Eric Eager. Kate, Adi, it's really fun to, to talk with you guys and uh... – yeah, I'm uh, always always excited that uh, you guys are reading the the stuff on sumersports.com. Well, we we we're up for conversations with you in person or in print anytime, Eric, and especially when you're tackling interesting and relevant questions like coaching effects. This is what the paper's about. It claims to say a little something, capture a little something about the difference a coach makes in an NFL game. We care about this because we're getting deeper and deeper on players all the time, of course. We have a sense that coaches matter. We just have a hard time getting at it. And you've done some work on this before, as you said, kind of bottom up, not just unlike the conversation Adi and I have just been having about fourth downs. I mean, using Adi's tool, you can go get some coaching effects. You can find out who's adding value, who's killing value on fourth down decisions alone. But in this paper, Eric, you go about, you go about it the other way around. You come from the top down. And let, why don't you give us a quick summary and I thought it'd be a fun thing for us to kick around, both because the substance is so important and because the methodology is interesting. Yeah, I think 
because by interesting, you know, I mean uh, controversial. That's what I mean by interesting. Go ahead. Okay, because I because I think that yeah, like some of the names that come out are certainly you know they pass the initial eye test, but then some of the names are kind of like really is is that guy still an effective coach? And I think we talk about it a little bit in the article where it's like you know in order to have a big enough sample size to do these estimates, you have to include games that may not be relevant to the, to the discussion. So for example, Bill Belichick, John Harbaugh, you know, guys that have been around forever. Um, is that estimate of their impact on the game? Is that accurate today? If you were going to go and use it, for example, in betting, does that actually make sense? And I, I talk about in the article that I think the answer is no. I think that this is sort of more of a broad kind of career award than it is like an actual, uh, you know, what is John Harbaugh worth today to the point spread for the Baltimore Ravens, for example? But, but, Eric, um, but, but yeah, hold I mean, on. my thing is, hold on, hold ahead. on, hold on, hold on. Let, let us let us understand what you did. So because I want to immediately start suggesting refinements that would help answer that question, which are kind of obvious, but we might as well put them on the table. But first, describe how you you get a list of coaches and Belichick comes out. You know, you've got a bound around this. It's not perfectly sure. But you're saying about a, a game and a half, I think, of value. Is that do I have that right? A point point, a point and a half per game. Point and a half per game, which is going to be more than a game and a half per season. Point and a half per game for Belichick, one point three seven for Harbaugh, for what it's worth, one point two nine for Reed. So that top three looks pretty good as career awards for Dangshire. But how did you get that again? So I basically I went through um get, you know, play game by game data and ultimately looked and said I had, you know, I have some data for who the quarterback is starting that game. I have data for who the coach is in that game. And and I think most importantly, I have the point spread for the game, which, you know, as I write in the article, in theory takes into consideration all of the available information as efficiently as possible. And my hypothesis is if there are errors in that point spread, and again, that's a big if, but you know, we, I think we all respect the markets significantly here. But if there are errors, it's probably going to be less so in the in the amalgamation of player ratings and team ratings and more so in our understanding of, of coaching. Um, as somebody who's built some bottom up stuff, as Adi has and has looked at like decision making, like a lot of the names matter, but a lot of the guys who have won historically, the Tomlins, the Vrabels, guys like that almost never show up in the good decision-making bucket, right? With fourth downs and, and kickoffs and all that stuff. But, oh, you know, oh, almost always win more than their talent. And so what I was trying to do is say, okay, all of us at this point know what the talent is on both sides of the ball. And that gives rise to a point spread. And then who over time is beating that estimation week in and week out, in theory, providing a, you know sort of a correction term for what the point spread should be. And that, but in theory, if the market were perfect, it would have coaching effects already in there. And yeah, you, coaching isn't secret. We know who's the coach, and we've seen their so performance. So it, it must be that that you, the the hypothesis behind this analysis is that market's good, but it's not perfect. So they're going to inefficiently capture that coaching information. You're going to see if there's anything left in the residual, essentially. Is this so the right way to think about it? It's also what I would call excess coaching effect. It's If you're getting 1.5 for Belichick, He's already got a point or two in the model, in the in the line, right? Shouldn't it, that this would be the the coaching effect that's missed by the line? That's right. That's right. Okay, so so I here, think, here, I think yeah. that that's a good way to put it. Correct. Yep. So it's underestimating the coaching effect is what is what it's saying. I think so, and I and again, I'm making an assumption that our our estimates of player value. So let's say we take Patrick Mahomes and we say he's worth. You know, I, I see anywhere from five to eight points to the point spread in a given week. We know that some of that is Andy Reid and how good he is at coaching. Like we really don't have a a uh, a, a like a pure talent estimate on any player because they're a manifestation of their talent as well as their coaching. So that was one of the reasons why I put quarterback effect in the model as well, just because I wanted to see if I could untangle those numbers end up a lot bigger if you don't put quarterback in, which makes sense. I mean, that's just math, but, but if you ultimately, like, I think to Adi's point, like a lot of what we, we, we know Andy Reid's impact on Patrick Mahomes because we can measure his production and his production has that within it. Um, what we don't know is sort of like the nonlinear effect. So if you 
have a model that says Travis Kelsey's worth 0.7 points to the point spread and Patrick is worth seven points to the point spread. Why do you, why do you see that manifested as like nine points effectively uh, game in and game out? Well, I'm, I'm in this, in this sort of work, I'm kind of assuming that those nonlinear effects, those round, those roundups are all due to coaching or, or, or the lack of roundups in the case of some of the coaches who are doing a uh, not as good of a job um, are due to coaching. Okay. So we want to, we want to commend you for the work, of course. And, but I want to say that before expressing frustrations, because you, you're doing the academic thing. You're saying, look, I'm just going to get this out there. It's a step forward. It's not the full answer yet. And then we'll iterate from there. And, you know, 10 years from now, we'll have a better, better idea. You're talking about work at the very, very frontier of football analytics, because you're trying to take football from this linear model which is kind of the baseball model. We know what guys are worth on the baseball field. To know what a team is worth, we pretty much just add them up. And it's really hard to find anything nonlinear in baseball. And that's because it's most most non-additive. Well, okay, fine. (laughs) But football, we know, has all these interactions between these players, at least potentially interactions with players. It's just that those things are really hard to model especially when you only got so much data and we're super limited. You can't just keep on throwing variables in the model because we've only got so much data to predict. And so we think they exist. We think they're important. We have a hard time getting at them. And you're talking about exactly that. You just talked about Kelsey being worth a certain number in a linear model. Mahomes being worth a certain number, but together they're probably worth more than the sum. So there's something extra going on there. You're starting out by saying, I think that extra comes from the coaching. It doesn't have to come from the coaching. They, can, no. they have this you know, rapport between them and this understanding. And Kelsey does these magical things, and somehow Mahomes anticipates it. And so it doesn't have to be the coaching. But you're, as a starting place, saying maybe the coaching is where it's well, coming from. But you're averaging over the entire careers, right? So so Belichick has many, many because... different teams, many different rosters, and you're still seeing this benefit. So in some level – the combinations change and those get averaged out. That, that, that's what he's done here. Yeah. He was, he was kind of telling yeah. us kind of theoretically where yeah. he was coming from, I think, rather than necessarily. Yeah. Right. And a lot of like when we, when, when I would rate coach, when I rate coaches currently in sort of the, a more uh, like, um, like if we're doing game predictions or we're doing consulting for like teams that are hiring, for example, we do something that isn't like a career award, right? Because Bill Belichick, you know, uh, uh, you know, Adia, I know you've seen the numbers as far as fourth down decisions and stuff. It hasn't been pretty relative to league averages of late and um, and so forth. I, I do still think he gets more out of the roster than than is. But it's not he's not he's not worth the most out of all the coaches in the NFL anymore. I would you know, I, I would be confident in saying that. So we do some adjustments. But the fact is, is like. To your point, Cade, like the the NFL data set is so sparse that you you really like it, it's if you drill down any further, like you get stability issues with your models, and and you get I think uh, an even bigger problem, which is to say, and and granted, this is like I I raise my hand as far as like a contributor to this problem at times, like you you try to you try to make you you try to make inferences for why stuff is happening based upon data that's not not big enough or not rich enough to make those inferences off of. And so yeah. one of the reasons I approached this problem was the Mike Tomlin thing. You know, not everything I every single model I've made except for this one doesn't like Mike Tomlin, even though Mike Tomlin <laughs> very clearly wins. And I and so I'm trying my I'm trying to look at it sort of from a top down method only because I'm trying to capture something that I think clearly exists, but I can't I can't measure it from the ground up. And and I think the errors you make also on the ground up, they propagate, whereas from top down, it's sort of as long as the data set is big enough, you can kind of sledgehammer it and get some insights. Well, they're super complimentary, and we, we're just because we've gotten we've gotten much better about bottom up because we have so much more data available now. But the more you propagate, as you say, the harder the challenge of aggregating back into the total. How do you aggregate all these little pieces, um, Eric? Why not? Tell me what's wrong with the seems like a more direct approach. In other sports, we sometimes look at a coach's value by saying how much his team outperforms the sum of the parts, essentially. So. We're getting closer, mm-hmm. especially in the NFL. I mean, I think you've done work and PFF's done work where you're willing to put a value on a player. Why don't we just look at either 
the 53 guys on the active roster or the 22 guys on the field or whatever and say how much top down top down we're going to sum those up and then say we know how they do with that team whether it's on a play or a game or a season why not just give the coach the credit for how much they outperform the sum of the parts uh, well, yeah that's a model that we've created at pff before um and and we use now at sumer um with different data but it's the, kind of the same premise and yeah that's like i think a very natural way to approach it i think my only issue is and we 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 do this so but but it it complicates some of the explanation is football is such a noisy game that if you build like an expectation model right so let's say you you have a team you know offense is worth 3 points above average and the defense it's going against is 2 points below average you put you create a model that says this play should have an expectation of 0.2 expected points let's just you know yep. and and it's a pick six. So now it's <laughs> minus 11.8 expected points. Like how do you dampen that to like basically not give a coach a significant downgrade over a play that's largely noise. So you, you kind of yeah. have to go through play types and specify them as um, noisy versus not noisy, and then kind of dampen or enhance the particular data points for that reason. So it's very similar to like, you know, win probability and everything like that, where you don't win probability is a great tool, but to use it to assess players, there's so many swings that can cause issues. Um, but, but yeah, we do a little bit of that looking at, and what's really interesting is if you break it down from the first 15 plays to play 16 through N it, it, there's, there's different types of coaches who excel in those different realms, the scripted plays versus the not scripted plays. So we, yeah. And, I, and Eric, we, let me just say we, what we, and of course, what we care about, of course, is the win. That is the unit we care about. And so you're working with plays because you want more data, but we, it's reasonable to say the coach, you know, may or may not do well on the play, but what he's going to work towards is getting that win. And in fact, we want to give coaches credit for like, you know, record in one score games, for example, but we're yep. challenged in that front because you're only seeing 16 games a season and even a Tomlin who's been around for a long time now, that's still a pretty limited data set, again, especially because of the noise. So it's it's just such, it's such a bear. Look, man, we're, we're going to have to let you go. But before we go, give us give us kind of the non-analytical <clears throat> summary with just some names. Give us some names. Give us somebody who you think. This is just Eric Eager over a beer at the end of the day. A coach you think is probably better than you would have thought from looking through your models and a coach that may be not as good as you would have thought from looking through, but how has your opinion changed? Give us one on both sides from your work. Yeah, this, I mean, and this, this dovetails to Ryan and Adi's paper, which is like just a little bit of humility. Like Pete Carroll is much better than I thought. Um, we see with Russell Wilson that Pete Carroll was, and this is part of football too. And this is a lesson here. What Pete Carroll was asking Russell Wilson to do or not asking Russell Wilson to do had signal in it as well. And so we all like to think about over expectation models. And I think like a lot of us in the community are kind of like getting over those models because so much information is embedded in the expectation and, and how much of that is actually, it's even down to this model where how much of the coaching is in the point spread. Um, I'm making an assumption that not that much is there, um, which, which may or may not be right. So Pete Carroll is one who's always, done better than than the players on his team um and then i think like negatively i think i had and this is part of my motivation for doing this work is everything everything i did from the bottoms up really like matt lafleur and i and i still think he's a good coach obviously they're having difficulties with injuries in the quarterback position you know breaking in a new player but this one didn't like him particularly uh much and um, that was that was interesting and 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 uh, it was surprising to me. So that mm-hmm. was one where uh, you know if I'm building an ensemble, he's going to have a weird ensemble because this top down model doesn't like him, and most of the bottom up models do. Right. All right. Super interesting, Eric. Thanks for jumping on, man. Keep up the good work. Obviously, we're interested in seeing about it. Hope things are going well. Looks like you might be maybe downtown Atlanta. Hope things are all well with you. We'll talk to you real soon. <laughs> I'm enjoying I'm enjoying Atlanta. So, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I can't wait to see you guys in Philly again. Okay, talk to you soon. Eric Eager, Sumer Sports, and that has been the first half of this week's Wharton Moneyball. 
We've got a half to go. More open lines, more analytics conversations. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to a full hour of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey with Audie Weiner and now Eric Bratlow. Eric joined us for the second half of the show. Delighted. We're still missing Shane. Shane will be back. Shane Jensen, of course, just off the line with Eric Eager for a short hit. Gave us a few minutes on some research he's been doing. We are rolling into the second half. We're going to keep it open lines here. Going to talk a little college football. Guys, I've got a bit of an agenda. And the agenda is college football rankings, playoff rankings, but also models, what we might learn about the rankings from thinking about models, what we might learn about models from working with the rankings. And let me just walk you through what's going on. The, the, this, this is week 11. I think we just played week 11. The, the college football play, playoff rankings will come out tonight. We've got a couple more weeks of regular season, then the conference championships. We've got three more weeks of games before this thing is settled. So I'm not spun up about what the exact numbers are. There's a lot of big games still in front of us. Michigan and Ohio State are still going to play. Washington and Oregon still have to sort out the Pac-12. They're probably going to end up in the championship out there. Florida State has some real games in front of it. Might get Louisville in the ACC championship. Georgia, Alabama, they both clinched their divisions in the SEC. We've got another SEC title game between those two. We've got some big games ahead of us. Rankings are going to move around. I want to talk process. And I thought, who better to talk process with than you two guys? So let's talk a little bit about process. And the starting place is, I do think that language and the framework has settled in. After 10 years of the playoff, the way people talk about it is eye test and resume. This is, this is what they're using, eye test and resume. And there's been some dismay this year because it seems like the committee is inconsistent in how much weight they put. On eye test, or for one team, it looks like they really privilege eye test, and then a couple spots down the rankings, they seem to be privileging resume, and that seems wrong. That doesn't seem right. You'd think the committee would be, whatever formula they want to use, whatever relative weights they want to use, they ought to be consistent. Adi. What is eye test? Okay, good. What goes into that? What they mean <laughs> by eye test, I'm going to bastardize what I- they mean by it, but it's but what they mean is how good they, you think the team is. That's what they mean. How good do you think the team is? Uh-huh. So, so it's just like a power ranking. Power ranking. Based on so all gonna, the data well, you see. You could make an argument, Audie, that at one definition, it's not the one they use, but right. I could use would be, let's say you have some, in quotes, objective ranking system. Any deviation from that's the eye test. No, well, okay, don't no, do that. I, no, but let's not confuse it because I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use it the way they mean it. Okay. Can we're, I, can I respond? Let, no, no, no. I don't want to go down that road. Okay. Because we're going to use their language even though we would interpret that language differently. Their language, by eye test, they mean how good you think that team is. It sounds and, like predictive rather yeah, than good. historical. I 100% agree with that. that. Good language for this would be eye test is predictive, resume is historical. Great. But the, I'm telling you, the language people are using is eye test and resume, so fine. We're going to use eye test resume. What we mean by that being an analytics show, predictive and historical. All right. So for predictive, being analytics, we're going to use power ratings. Now, there are a lot of different ratings. Happily for us, CFB Nate... Nate Model average? We're going to ensemble. Nate ensembles ensemble. for us. Beautiful. Nate ensembles for us. Nate started doing this last Let's year, Let's just be I a clear. Though. I just have a more technical question. I think I know what I would do. I think I would ensemble, let's call it the latent strengths, and then rank as opposed to ensemble the ranks. Uh, for sure. For so sure. I just want to make sure everyone's clear. Let's imagine that you have some scale, a continuous line from minus infinity or even positive from zero to infinity that and everyone's location on that line represents their unobserved latent strength. You average those things and then you rank. You don't, in some sense, go to the observed rankings and then average those. It's important for our listeners to know the difference. What an ensemble is, you ensemble the models, not the outcomes. And, and that's why, Adi, why do we care about that? Adi's always he's great about ordinal versus cardinal. Yeah, fundamentally, a, a big difference in ranks is could be almost no difference exactly. in power, particularly in this fat part of the distribution. It's why we'll it, flip it around. Yeah. A big difference at the front of the distribution. Oh, it's you're going to see worse, big yeah, differences yeah. between those two things. And only the, one, one, one notch. One number, ranking. right? Yeah, one notch crazy. in the ranking. It's talk, talk about nonlinearity. I mean, that's really what it is. So, Matt, Matt, you might throw up just for these guys. We have a, we have a. We're going to look at some things visually, but look up, look up Nate's 
at CFB Nate from Twitter to show these guys what he does because it's so fantastic. And I've gotten to where Nate's got, let me just read you who Nate has in here. He has Bill Connolly's ratings. He has something from ESPN. I'm guessing that's FPI. It has to be FPI. He has Brian Fremo's rating. So you know, these are, Connolly and Fremo are offspring from Aaron Schatz. And so Aaron's in here twice in a way. Beta rank, Kelly Ford ratings, CFB winning edge. He's got six or seven different models in there. And uh, the great way to do this, Matt, yeah, show him that. Because this is the, on, he's, Matt's showing the guys, Eric and Adi, CFB Nate's feed, which is awesome. And then to really capture it, Matt, show them the next one over the visualization on the, and this shows you that spread you're talking about. The guys at the top of the rank, the guys at the top here, just one spot difference is a big gap, second spot, big gap, and then in the middle, they're really scrunchy. But you can see how the conferences are laid out. So what I'm going to take as eye test is just CFB Nate's composite, his ensemble. It's got six or seven models. Who knows who's best? One week, one's going to be best. One week, the next is going to be best. You have a hard time doing better than just ensembling a few models. Nate does that for us, and we get what's going to count as a good analytic eye test right now. What would, what would stop me from turning, if you want to say who knows who's best, what would stop you from taking the ensemble, let's say, after week 11, use those in a predictive model for week 12, and see whose predictive model actually does better. Let's use it for prediction and just see. I understand that you're going to have to update it each week and everything, and there's sparse state and all kinds of challenges. But you could, in some sense, evaluate which of these six or seven models is best in terms of out-of-sample prediction. Reasonable question, really small sample. So what's going to happen if you do that? One model is going to win one week, another model is going to win another week, and you're going to need 15, 30, 45 weeks to really start relaxing. I got time. <laughs> well, t- actually, this is the best. This is the way ensembles are proven to be optimal. Is they exactly. do they do pr- they do weights that based on historical no, performance. No, no. Oh, no, so no, if no, one no, one's no. better, they end up converging on the best one, putting all the weight. Oh, on Oh no, but I get a simple. Y'all are y'all are doing good, sophisticated things, but you're going to need a lot of time <laughs> and sample to do that. Yeah. We don't have it. No. And here's the thing, guys. Just linear weight them. Don't try to get too cute. We don't know which one's going to be better for the next three weeks. Weight them equally. And often that thing, the average of these things, is going to outperform That's sometimes possible. everybody. But it's going to certainly average outperform well, the average. It has a Bayesian formulation. When you equally weight them, essentially you're integrating over equal prior. Right. And that's what you just did. <laughs> that's, that's surprisingly less intuitive than just average. I was also going to comment on, on one other thing. I always think of the way that they do the college football rankings is almost what I call sequential. And here's what I mean by that. Like someone's going to come out of the Big Ten. The Ohio State-Michigan winner, they're playing in two weeks. I'm going to the game. I'm so excited about it in Michigan. Sweet. Are you really? Yeah. Well, my oldest son's girlfriend, uh, sorry, fiance, I apologize, Ethan. Oh, okay. Fiance <laughs> is from Michigan, so we're going to Detroit for Thanksgiving. In fact, we're going to the Lions game on Thanksgiving Day and then Michigan-Ohio State that Saturday. But ignoring that, somebody from the Big Ten is going for, is going to go. Someone from the SEC is going to go. So I think when they come up with these rankings, they're thinking sequentially. There'll be a Big Ten team. There'll be an SEC mm-hmm. team. Then probably, the way you described it, Kay, there's probably going to be a Pac-10 team. It's probably going to be Oregon or Washington. It has we're, to be. We're getting there. Oh, sorry. We're getting there. Sorry. I, I, I want to see. I got excited. Quite, well, we tend to think that way. And what I'm trying to do today is when we bring a model, when we honor the model, let's establish a process and then see what that tells us, Eric, about your intuitions, because I share some of your intuitions, and I think the model helps at least raise questions about those intuitions. All right, so I've, I'm putting together resume and eye test. We've talked through eye test. We're using CFB Nate's ensemble as our eye test. It's a suite of six power rankings. For resume, we're just going to grab somebody's strength of record. So this is a, a measure that's come out in the last few years. It's a fantastic measure. It's typically the probability that a top 25 team would earn the record that this team has. Okay. And it does not consider a margin of victory. I'm going to use Kelly Ford's because it's available in continuous form. He has one that considers margin of victory. I'm going to use the one that doesn't consider margin of victory because it's more orthogonal to the power rankings, and it's probably more traditional for what they look at. People do look at strength of record. It's a systematic, objective measure of resume. And... So we'll take that. It's not going to vary as much as these power rankings, so I'm not, I'm not as worried about whether I'm using Kelly Ford's or somebody else's. Kelly's was available, so it's up there. So I've got these two measures, eye test and resume. And I'm going to plot the current contenders just through week 11. I'm not saying anything about this is the final. 
I'm just saying today, let's just use that model, these two measures, to see what it would tell us about this week's rankings and what it should. And remember the original motivation. The motivation was, it seems like the committee's not consistent. And one of those reasons might be because they don't have an objective measure like we have, but others like they're slippery with how much they weight these things. Okay, I'm going to put this thing up and have you guys look at it and let's talk it through. So what we've got is plotting the top eight teams or so. Is that eight? That's eight teams on these two measures. And so the, you can think of it, guys, as you're visualizing this, it's a, it's a two by two and the northeast quadrant is kind of the efficient frontier. You want the better teams are in the northeast, but there's some variation. Some teams are better on the eye test, the power ratings. Some people are better on the resume. Right now, I don't have labels on the teams. I've just put dots up there representing the positions. So the first question is, guys, how do you decide which four teams? It's gonna, what, what you need is some trade-off between resume and eye test, some weighting system between resume and eye test, and that's some diagonal line you're going to draw in there. And if you put it on the 45, if you draw 45-degree lines in there, that's equal rates. If you have it really steep, kind of kind of vertical, then you're saying a little bit of move on resume is worth a lot of move on eye test. Another way resume is, is in other words, resume is much more important. If it's kind of horizontal, the opposite. Eye test is what matters. And so you can draw lines in here that represent the relative weight of resume to eye test and apply it systematically and just say, okay, at this weight, these are the four teams that are above the line. At this weight, these are the four teams above the line. So I like that thinking. Um, the only thing I would do for our listeners who, I, you know, I'm sure we'll put the plot up, and you can also look at this. It looks appears to be this, at, as Cade said, at CFB Nate Ensemble. Um, there's one point all the way to the right that actually um, dominates all other points but one. Exactly. And so yes. that point, it's hard to argue a coherent system wouldn't at least lead to that point. Because, you know, I'm obviously for Cade and I'm referring to this one here, defeats all other points except for that one point on all other two dimensions. So, you know, it has to be included in the final No matter form. the weighting system. No matter what the weighting system, if, it has to be. Okay, great. This is why we put these up without labels first. We're kind of agreeing on a process. And we're being as objective about it as possible. And by the way, here's what I want to say very importantly. We don't advocate models to give you answers necessarily. We advocate models to facilitate dialogue. And this is something that analysts need to say more of more often. And it's not that we think these guys need to punch it into a calculator and this will give you the answer. But we want them to be having but a more I've... informed conversation because they've looked at it this systematically. Yeah, but now you can see where I'm going. So this is now let's say we, we can debate this next point. Let's say we make a sequential decision process. So this point here is now in. Well, if this point's removed from the plot, then all of a sudden that point up there, almost, not quite, but is almost Pareto dominant to the others. In other words, it's so high up on that dimension, and it's not defeated by anybody on the strength of record dimension by any measurable quantity within a standard. So now you have to pick that point so what, if you're sequential. What Eric means by Pareto dominant is it kind of doesn't matter. It means, in this system, it means it doesn't matter what your weight is between these two. It's going to be the best point. It's not quite that, but it's, it's, almo it's almost that. Can I just ask you a clarification? So we're measuring the power rating, their eye test, using points as a measure. Mm -hmm. But the resume, the strength of schedule, is, is that a rank? No, that's a probability. It looks like a rank because it's on a scale from 0 to 25, but it's a probability a top 25 team would have achieved their record. So, for example... A team the, at 25 or a team... The, top, a, a, the average top 25 team... The average, okay. ...would have achieved their record. This is, a, this is a standard way strength of record is talked about. And so it varies from really low. Like if you look at Ohio State or something, it's like 2.6% to among our top contenders down to like 25%. And in fact, there's, there's a team that's not on here that's in the conversation because their strength of record is down around 50%. Meaning given they haven't played very much and they've already lost a game... Half of the top 25 teams could have achieved that. So just to be clear how I would computationally do this for our listeners, I literally, for each team in the top 25, I compute the probability they would have that record, and then I just take the average of it. That's Well, I, I assume that's the way it's done, can, yes, can but I, that's different than taking the average team it in the is, top It is. I don't want to do that. I want to take, you the, take, take all, of, all them. of them and then average. I like that. But the yeah. problem with that metric is that if you, by accident, just haven't yet played a strong schedule, and even if you won the games, then well, you could end... 
you could end up a top twenty five team could have that record too, and you could be kind of low. That's good. That's what we want. That's resume. Strength right. So you don't record. have much resume, but in that kind of in that kind of person, you probably want to. In other words, it has to do with also opportunity. Hundred so. percent. But that's that's a feature, not a bug, because that's how it's talked about. Mm-hmm. Another or another way, idea you could say to yourself is if you're a team and you know that strength of record is going to be one of the criterion that the committee is going to use, and you play in a conference, for example, that isn't that strong, you damn better schedule some strong out-of-conference games because, you I'll use your word, you have no opportunity to develop a strong strength of record. That's exactly your point. And matter of fact, I would want to know that if, I'm, you know, if I need a stronger schedule to get a stronger record, I would do it. Now, get, now. I just, I'm, I'm just thinking, you're, you give, you're giving us lines, and I'm wondering whether it has to be lines. Yes, because that's the conversation. Okay. And if that's, it's the way, it's exactly the debate. They played who they played, they did what they did, and that's history, and you should give that some weight. And some teams pl- happened to play a tougher schedule. 100%, that's the, that's, the, that's the nature of the beast. Okay, guys, I've put labels on these now. Oh. You can see the teams. And now I'm asking you, what do you learn? Because I learned some things from this that I think are interesting. So but let me just name. Eric said there was one point on this graph that is Pareto dominant, meaning no matter what weight you put on this thing, you're going to take this team. And right now, that's Ohio State. It's actually not Pareto dominant because you get a really flat. You could put all the weight on, on power rating, almost all the weight on right. power rating, and it won't be the first, yeah, yeah. but it would be a top four team. Yeah, I agree. I said it certainly is not dominated by any point. And I said if you eliminate that one point up there, which happens out to be Michigan, it is Pareto dominant to every other point. Okay, so one thing we learned from this is that using these two metrics, which are just as good as we can do shorthand for these eye test and resume, Michigan and Ohio State are way out on the Northeast frontier relative to everybody else. In other words, regardless of what weighting scheme you come up with, those two are going to be in. And really the same would be true, not quite of Georgia. You would have to put all of the weight on strength of record to exclude Georgia. If you include any eye test, they're going to be in there as well. But then everybody else is up for debate depending on what the weights are. I don't think anybody would disagree with that right now. I think what most people would say is it's if the season – now, good news – well, good or bad, Michigan and Ohio State are playing each other. And then one of them won't be the conference champion, and so and one of them will have a loss. That team probably, given the way it's turning out, will be eliminated despite – we may put up this same graph after that game. The same thing will be true, and one of them will not make it. Okay, this is, but this is, this is something that I learned from this, essentially. But that's not, a, that's not we've, fair? We've only considered two dimensions, and they are the most, two, most important two dimensions. The other factors, the main other factor is conference championship. We don't know exactly how that should come in here but it's going to come in in some way. And the fourth and final factor, and probably least important, is head-to-head. And they think in a tiebreaker situation, they'll consider a head-to-head. There'll be some head-to-heads here. So the nice thing about the, the approaching it this way is the model gives you this layout. And if you don't like who it says should be the top four, you need some reason for not liking that. And that could be conference championships, or it could be head-to-head. But you you see the difference those things would make and how much difference they would need to make to change it. So just to be clear, two teams, well, one team you may care about, Texas is on this map, and so is the team it beat in Alabama. So Alabama, though, by this picture, only slightly so, should be taken over Texas, but Texas beat them. Alabama is farther to the right, slightly farther strength of record, and the eye test is stronger. And you're saying because also um, tiebreaker is a farther down criterion, one could legitimately take Alabama, not take Texas, despite they may both end up, I'll make it up 11-1, and one, and Texas beat them, and Texas is out. It, 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 if it comes down to if them, it comes down then to that. would be a super interesting way to illustrate how much weight they put on or don't put on head-to-head. You, can cut, you literally visualize the gap here between Alabama and UT and say, is head-to-head worth that or not? Well, that's the way I like it. Because, and by the way, for me personally, I, I've said it very clearly, I would take UT. I'm not just saying that because you're here. You have a head-to-head comparison. I think they played each other. No one was injured. There's no arguments. Texas won the game at Alabama. I think it is worth that difference, but that's just a subjective well, opinion. Is, it, is the fact that it was early in the season make well, a difference? Well, it's going to make a difference in the conversation. It is. And yes. Texas hasn't looked as good. Alabama's really come on. I think I think if it went right now that that they would not carry the weight. But let me just well, also, if it. Alabama beats Georgia, we'll find yeah, that's out, a whole, too. That's a whole, <laughs> different, a whole thing. different game. But then it's UT versus Georgia, and it's not a head-to-head thing. 
So one of the things that I take from this figure, and as Eric said, we'll get this out, but I think it's a super interesting way to say, okay, people talk about resume, people talk about eye test. One, can we quantify that? Yes, it's very quantifiable, and even in a very light-handed way. Let's ensemble. Let's just take some people's stuff and put it up there. It's not very controversial. And then let's just see what it says. This isn't to give an answer. It's to facilitate a conversation. This should make very plain. Okay, we want to be consistent. It's like reasonable to be consistent about the weights on resume versus eye test. A consistent is just drawing a line. Draw any line you want to, but it's one line, and the four teams to the northeast of that line go in. You don't like that line? Draw a different line. What four teams? And then debate the lines because those are the weights. But, guys, it's going to say some interesting, challenging things to us because my money says Michigan and Ohio State almost regardless of the line, no matter what happens in Ann Arbor in two weeks, are both going to be northeast of that line. Agreed. And that's going to be challenging this year because in a year where we have a lot of good contenders, to take two but from agree. one conference yeah. is going to mean excluding two conference champions. No chance. Okay. Well, then we're saying conference championships. I love conference championships as a criteria, and I think it should matter a lot. In fact, I think it should be deterministic. But that's not the way it has gone historically. So what probability – I don't know if Massey Peabody's made a forecast. What probability are you putting that Michigan and Ohio State are both in the Final Four? The 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 folks who have this out on the internet, right? ESPN has whatever their all-state ESPN playoff predictor. Yeah. And the sum of the probabilities that they give Michigan and Ohio State is 1.26, 1.25. Wow. So they say – Expected number of Big Ten teams in the Final Four is 1.25. Maybe one of them has all of that. No, they're I'm pretty, joking. They're actually, it can't be more than one. Quite, I'm joking. No, but, but it's not even that, Eric. It's really evenly split between the two. And just to break it down further, there's the sum of Alabama and Georgia is just under one. So they're saying really one of those teams is likely to bid in and not more than one. And then I, the weakest by far is the Big 12. Texas is coming in at like 0.37, and OU only has like 1% on top of that. And FSU? FSU is like 0. 0.65, 0. 0.67. Because they're, so they're going to be saying, an undefeated. They're likely to be but, an undefeated champion. But, well, I think they're saying 0. 0.67. Here's a simple way to think about it. 0. 0.67 chance that they went out and they're going to get in. If right. they lose the game, they're not, they're not going to no, get I, in. That's, so it's 0. 0.67 of, of winning out. But they still, they're going to have to play, say, Louisville, which is going to be a legitimate game. And then, of course, the other interesting one is the Oregon-Washington and my memory is that that sums to about one as well. So they're saying one of those two teams. No, it's not quite that high. Maybe the sum of those is, again, in the six, is 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. Yeah, Look, the reality is, right. I think this is what I texted you over the weekend. If Washington goes undefeated and FSU goes undefeated, they're both going. Then it has to be either Michigan or Ohio State and Alabama or Georgia, and we're done. I don't want to call it deterministic. That's deterministic. I think the undefeateds make it deterministic, but the chances, I mean, odds are against those, all those teams winning out. Washington winning out. Washington has a stout schedule between now and the end. FSU has not looked world-beating, and so likely we have some a bunch of one. And I gave you back a scenario where it's almost all one-loss teams, which is like your favorite chaos scenario. You, you mean my prediction of 12 consecutive wins by the teams I predict is not likely? I don't know what you're talking I about. I know, I know. All right, guys. Well, maybe we'll revisit this way of thinking about it because I think it's clarifying. And again, not to give an answer, but to make our dialogue a little more sophisticated and our trade-offs a little more plain. All right, team, that has been another Wharton Moneyball, another hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the crew, looking at them in person, Deion Simpkins, Matty Datch, many, many thanks to you guys. For Eric Bradlow, Audi Weiner, for Shane Jensen in absentia, thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>